Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Uh, could I start off this afternoon by just talking about what the Bank of England didn't do this week? The last time we spoke, we were talking about the possibility of a Bank of England interest rate increase this week. And because that expectation had certainly been created to some extent, uh, we said at the time that an interest rate increase would be a mistake. But the Bank of England had backed itself into a bit of a corner. So how do you interpret what the Bank of England didn't do yesterday? My overarching comment is that they made a bollocks of it because they've got a new governor, a guy called Andrew Bailey, and a new chief economist, a guy called Hugh Pill. And like most uh, senior central bankers, Mr. Pill is ex-Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, or alumni of Goldman Sachs, seem to run the world these days. And both of them have made speeches, given interviews in recent weeks strongly hinting that interest rates would rise this week. The overwhelming consensus of opinion was that they had told us that interest rates would rise this week. And then they didn't. Central bankers say that their job is is, is to be boring and not to be exciting. And they have caused havoc. They caused havoc in the bond markets, which is a very important financial market. And in a small way, they've caused havoc in the foreign exchanges because sterling has inevitably weakened a touch since then uh, and has certainly stopped going up in the way that it has recently. This is not the way to conduct monetary policy. You conduct monetary policy so that it doesn't make headlines, which is in fact what the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, did this week. It managed to start what, what is called tapering, which is taking its foot off the monetary accelerator. The way it does this, it prints a bit less money than it otherwise would have been doing. And it hints that further down the pike, we are going to get 
some interest rate rises. The reasons given by the Bank of England for failing to raise interest rates were interesting. They didn't add up to a credible case in my view, because although the reasons given themselves all made sense, it wasn't information that they suddenly got yesterday. This was all stuff that they knew when they were making those speeches about the need to raise interest rates quickly. And the reasons given for not raising interest rates yesterday is that an awful lot of the price rises, you and I have talked about supply chains and inflation around the world endlessly, and the Bank of England clearly is mandated to do something about this. They pointed out an awful lot of the inflation that is present in the UK is coming from outside the UK. And Mr. Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, said quite dramatically on the radio only this morning, he said, I I can put interest rates up as much as you like, but that won't get energy and gas prices in particular down. It won't get the oil price down. And he talked a lot about the temporary nature of inflation, that's something that you and I have talked about, Jim. And he said that the, the trigger for him for getting really worried would be if there was a generalized sense that wages were going up. He welcomed the fact that some wages are going up in these poorer quality jobs that we know about. He seemed to think that was great. And I think we all would applaud that as well. Uh, but he doesn't think that there is a generalized wage problem uh, in the UK. Now, as I say, that all makes abundant sense. But the fact is, He knew all that when he made those speeches about putting interest rates up. So it's a curiosity as to why they did back themselves into that corner. What was also interesting in what they did yesterday were the documents that were released uh, alongside this decision not to raise rates. And the forecasts for the UK economy are horrible. Growth is peaking about now. Growth is going to fall over the next couple of years. In 2024, I think it is, to 1%. So they, they have a very negative view of the underlying potential of the uh, UK economy. So this year, it's going to go by about 7%, which is the bounce back from the minus 9% of, of last year, the pandemic year. Next year, it'll be 5%. In 2023, it'll be 1.5%. And in 2024, the UK economy will manage a massive 1%. Now, these are all forecasts, but they're pretty grim forecasts, not just in and of themselves, because Forecasting a few years out, your GDP growth rate to be 1% suggests that's where you think the trend, underlying rate of growth of the UK is. And that's not good 1%. That's not good for anybody in the UK. And it's not good for the government either. Because remember, Boris Johnson has promised this high productivity, high growth, high wage economy for the next few years. And there's nothing resembling a high growth, high wage, high productivity in the Bank of England numbers. And Chris, can I just ask you, what is the basis for that Bank of England pretty depressing outlook on the economy? I think it's got two things. I think it's the the, the underlying rate of productivity growth, the way in which they model it. It's been a problem in the UK for years. They clearly think it isn't going to get any better. And it's explicitly saying that Boris Johnson's high productivity, new, new economic model just isn't going to be present. It's not going to happen. So, for example, uh, the average hourly labour productivity between 1998 and 2007, so a period, uh, you know, a, a reasonably high period uh, growth for, the, for productivity was about 2%. Over the last 10 years, or at least the 10-year period 2010 to 2019, hourly productivity in the UK was three quarters of 1%. That was all. And what basically they're saying is that that's what's going to continue, that the labour force isn't going to grow very much because we don't do immigration anymore in the UK. Um, and that the only th- the only growth that we'll get will be the sort of growth that we got in the first uh, te- la- over the last ten years. 
So I think that this is an economic problem and it clearly is a political problem for, for Boris Johnson. But they, they also see inflation going up as high as 5% before coming back to 2%. Now, of course, you and I have talked endlessly about economic forecasts and that we need to be very careful. That's all these are, the economic forecasts. They will be wrong, but they are from an official agency. They are from, a, you know, these are the best forecasts that economists can come up with. So um, it's it's pretty pretty bleak stuff. Um, I sincerely hope that Ireland does a lot better than this, Jim. And I think yeah. that on the official for, your official forecast for much higher growth rates in Ireland over this same period. Uh, yeah, we're we're looking at we're looking at growth slowing from around five percent next year to about just over three percent by twenty twenty five. And you know, I I hasten to repeat what you've just said there uh, about the dangers of forecasting a year out not to mention five years out but it is also indicative of a belief that the trend growth rate in the Irish economy will remain pretty strong over the next five years so obviously the challenge for policymakers now is to make sure that everything that's done um, facilitates that sort of trend growth rate in the economy I just want to ask you going back to the Bank of England situation um, back in 1997 when Tony Blair became Prime Minister and New Labour took the helm in the UK and Gordon Brown was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer. One of the first things that Blair did was to give operational independence to the Bank of England, uh, basically meaning that the Bank of England could set interest rates outside of the realms of political influence, which had been the case prior to that. Um, The Chancellor gave an inflation target to the Bank of England and it was up to the Bank of England to deliver that target. And if it failed, it had to write a letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer explaining why that was the case. And it struck me, you know, notwithstanding um, the travails of the great financial crash and COVID over the last couple of years, it struck me that that was one of the most positive developments we've seen in UK economic policymaking for a lot of years. And it also strikes me that up until this week, The Bank of England really, in my view, I may be wrong, but it strikes me that it didn't put a foot wrong. So what's happening? Is is there a danger, Chris, that this sort of political malaise that Boris Johnson is creating is actually starting to infect the Bank of England? It's possible uh, because all central banks do operate in in the, the political environment of the country or the region in question and that there is a political element to anything that any central bank does the, the the central bank has to have has to be politically savvy i wouldn't give the bank of england quite the 99 out of 100 marks that you gave it there uh, there were some i think pretty bad missteps particularly during the financial crisis uh, Mervyn King's reluctance to uh, step in to bail out the banking system in its in the early days of the crisis, citing things like moral hazard was classic academic economic bullshit, in my opinion, to use a technical term. So they've done well on the inflation front, but on some of the other aspects that, of their management, I think that, that they left a lot. That particular episode left a lot to be desired, and big blots on on your history. Uh, I think do need to be remembered. We've talked before about the way in which the ECB messed up coming out of the financial crisis via an interest rate rise that was completely inappropriate. So all central banks have checkered track records, I think, not, not least the Bank of England. I, don't, I 
I don't think the Bank of England's independence is under any threat. I do think that there clearly have to be a lot more letters written over the next couple of years because inflation is going to stay over the target range for quite some time. But on the Bank of England's own forecast, surprise, surprise, by 2024, CPI inflation is back down to 2%. But for me, as I said earlier, the, the really big deal that could cause trouble for the bank in terms of, you know, good people will make a, a lot of this and they will come under political pressure behind closed doors is that their forecasts for uh, real post-tax labour income over the next three to four years. Uh, because uh, in 2022 and 2023, real post-tax labour income on the Bank of England's forecasts is negative, going to fall in the UK. Okay, Chris, can I just step in and defend um, my interpretation of recent Bank of England performance um, and I, I, I'll try and take on the rubbishing of my interpretation of history uh, that you have just described there. It was one, one, one small thing, Jim, one small <laughs> blot. The Bank of England basically oh, okay, is a good I did, job. I did say, Chris, that notwithstanding the great financial crash, and, and, if, and if you think about it, uh, the experience with the great financial crash and indeed the experience with COVID-19, you know, that's not normal. That is a really exceptional type of economic shock. Uh, and I think all policymakers can be excused, at least initially, for making mistakes during um, periods of such uncertainty. But I suppose my overall point is that if you sort of strip out, and I know this is uh, a real flight of fancy, but if you strip out that period of great financial crash and the uncertainty that created, that it struck me that the Bank of England actually had managed to get rid of the boom-bust cycle that had characterised the UK for decades and that had created such problems here in Ireland for a couple of reasons. One, our huge trade dependence on a very volatile economy and secondly, our huge dependence on a very volatile currency. So I thought the Bank of England independence had actually delivered a much more stable economic cycle. But I, I do take your point, you know, mistakes were made during the great financial crash. Again, I don't want to get into, you know, the weeds of economic history, but I think the Bank of England deserves credit for helping dampen economic volatility. The wild swings of the business cycle that we got used to in the century before 1980 uh, have not been present since. So th it had actually started to calm down before the Bank of England got its independence, but it, Bank of England independence contributed to that, as did central bank independence everywhere. But the Bank of England and the UK, if you like, also got lucky because the global environment became less volatile. It didn't become, volatility didn't disappear altogether. We've had some big ups and downs. But the last 30, 40 years, uh, people might be surprised to learn, have been far less volatile than the previous 30, 40 years, um, notwithstanding the financial crisis and, and, and other bumps along, along the way. So we, we, the global environment has helped the Bank of England and all central banks deliver a more stable environment, up until the present day anyway. The, okay. the next, next few years might, might be interesting. But Jim, let's move away from the UK. Yeah, I was going to bring you across the Atlantic, Chris. Go on. We've had the Fed this week, haven't we? Yeah, we've had the Fed, but we've also had this afternoon a US employment report for October showing that the economy created 531,000 jobs, which was significantly stronger than expected and also stronger than recent months. Um, and indeed, the September originally reported increase of 194,000 jobs was revised up to an increase of 312,000. 
and the unemployment rate has now fallen to 4.6% of the labour force. So that does suggest that the labour market is starting to surge in the United States. And, And it's also, I think, interesting that employment in the hospitality sector did increase significantly. So is that an indication, for example, that the uh, the labour shortages being experienced by sectors like that is starting to sort itself out. So how how do you interpret? And I, and I guess particularly, Chris, in the context of what the Federal Reserve said this week, how does this employment report fit into their sort of narrative at the moment? Well, I think the because the Fed, unlike the Bank of England and the ECB, the Fed has a dual mandate. It's supposed to deliver on low inflation and high employment or low unemployment. And there's a lot of people think that that's a nutty mandate because they've only got one instrument, which is the interest rate hitting two targets. And there's a basic fundamental theorem in economics that you can't do that. Anyway, so they will welcome the fact that there's a lot of jobs growth, both in the most recent month. And as you rightly said, the revisions were also in the right direction as well. Some context, though, if you look at projections made just before the pandemic by independent forecasts for where employment would be today. So go back to before the pandemic, so two years ago, really, to where they thought employment, if if jobs just continued on their trend rate of growth at around that time to the present day, where would we be? We're about six, seven million short. Although it's very welcome, they need to be placed in context. But it does suggest that the US economy has been a wee bit stronger than perhaps we thought, because we have been talking about it slowing down a lot over the last while. So it looks as if there's been, for all of the the slow growth numbers or slowing growth numbers at the margin, it's been a job intense uh, period of of growth, which, which is great. There's nothing that I've seen in the wage data to scare the Fed. So I think that they will say, happy days, we're meeting both our mandates, which is low inflation or inflation that is likely to fall. Because I think like the Bank of England, they will be watching the wage numbers very, very closely. Because the way in which this inflation problem, as we have said so many times, becomes sustained rather than transitory or more sustained than it already is, is if this uh, wage growth, which we are seeing in some sectors of both the UK and the US economies, becomes threatens or portends the classic wage price spiral. Some people think we're already there. I don't, but I have to acknowledge that it hasn't gone my way. So the Fed will be watching this somewhat nervously, but they will be basically pleased, but hopeful that their forecasts that inflation now starts to fall, or at least starts to fall through the course of next year, comes to pass. And it's the, it's the labour market. And as Andrew Bailey said about the UK, I, I suspect Jerome Powell will be saying about the US, that if the labour market starts to misbehave with respect to wages, then they are going to have to raise rates very quickly. They're not there at the moment, so they're not going to be there for a while, but uh, that's the, that, that's going to be the swing factor. It's the state of the labour market. Yeah, it's, it's an evolving story that we've discussed a lot and will continue to discuss um, here in Ireland. During... You've, got, you've got an economy going gangbusters, generating so much tax revenue. I don't know why you don't start spending it, Jim. Those exchequer returns this week were extraordinary. Yeah. Why don't... Why don't you make more of it? And why don't, you know, you, we've had two budgets recently, one in Ireland, one in the UK. Here in the UK, the Chancellor spent a lot of the tax revenues because the, the, the same phenomena is present in both economies. Buoyant, very buoyant tax revenues. Much more tax revenue than was forecast only a few weeks ago. And yet your, your Chancellor, your finance minister, sorry, I mustn't use a UK expression for the, the Irish finance certainly minister. certainly must not. I apologise sincerely. Uh, he, he chose essentially to put it all in the bank, didn't he? 
unlike Rishi Sunak. Yeah, he did, he did really. Uh, we, we, we got two pieces of economic data out of Ireland this week. One is the exchequer returns that I'll talk about in a second. And the other was the unemployment statistics for the end of October. Um, the unemployment rate is now down at, or sorry, the level of unemployment is down at 135,200. That's a decline of 18,400 in the last 12 months. And the underlying unemployment rate has fallen to 5.2% of the labour force. And then if you adjust for COVID, um, and, and the reason why you adjust for COVID is that um, we've seen over the period of COVID, uh, a lot of workers that were on the employment wage subsidy scheme that were being subsidised by the state were not categorised as unemployed. Okay, so if you adjust for that, the COVID adjusted unemployment rate is now down at seventeen point, sorry, 7.9%. And that had been over 25%. So the Irish labour market is rapidly moving back towards a situation of full employment again. And um, that the, there is a sort of an official expectation that it will be 2023 before uh, we attain the levels of employment and unemployment that we saw before COVID-19. Um, I have always believed it would occur much sooner, certainly by the middle of next year at the latest. And that certainly is appears to be what's happening in terms of the exchequer finances um first 10 months of the year and november is an important month for collecting tax revenues as well but for the first 10 months of the year we've collected almost 51 billion that's 19.6 percent ahead of the same period last year and i guess there are three areas that account for over 84% of our total tax revenues that are driving this very, very strongly. Um, the income tax take, $20.6 billion collected, accounting for almost 41% of the total tax take, up by 21.5% over the last 12 months. And that is despite the strength of the labour market. So very positive labour market uh, tax revenues being generated. The second um, is the VAT uh, 12.6 billion collected, accounting for 24.7% of the total tax take, up by over 24% in the last 12 months. And that's indicative of the recovery in consumer spending, and particularly the 19% growth in car sales that we've seen in the first 10 months of the year. And I guess the third piece that is really interesting and has been really interesting for some time. And that is what's happening on the corporation tax side. 9.6 billion collected, accounting for 18.7% of the tax take, 24.6% um, ahead of last year. That's equivalent to 1.9 billion extra being collected. Um, and, and, and indeed, um, while the CS or sorry, the Department of Finance stepped in and said, listen, don't overinterpret the corporation tax receipts because they collected an extra 300 million because of some um, tax cases that were settled during the month of October. But notwithstanding that, the corporation tax situation is incredibly buoyant. And, and you have alluded to this for quite some time that the, the global trend, particularly the US trend towards very strong uh, tech earnings, particularly you know, is bound to have an impact on the public finances in this country. And that indeed is what's happening. So in a nutshell, tax revenues continue to grow very, very strongly. 
uh, in the first 10 months, 3.8 billion ahead of target and 8.3 billion ahead of the same period last year. So the deterioration in the Irish public finances, you know, the deficit that's been generated over the last 18 months is very definitely due to spending rather than any decline in taxation. So it's a good story. And the deficit in the first 10 months, for what it's worth, 7.4 billion, uh, over 4 billion lower than the same time last year. So a very strong exchequer position. And um, I suppose, as you alluded to in your introduction, um, you know, one wonders about the, the whole stance of the budget um, there that was presented a few weeks ago. But I, I think that relatively conservative approach uh, is totally appropriate economically and politically. Because well, is, that, is that the political point is the one that interests me as much yeah. as the economic one. They must be storing up a giveaway budget prior to the next election, surely. Uh, well, yeah, that that's what you, you would certainly think. And, um, you know, un- unfortunately, the electorate is fickle enough to buy these sorts of promises from politicians of all hues. Uh, so, you know, the electorate can be bought. There's no doubt about that. Uh, what I would actually prefer to see happening at this stage, actually economically, socially and politically, is that these revenues that are being generated should really be directed very strongly in the direction of seriously addressing the housing problem. You know, because I've said it many times that I believe that economically, socially and politically, housing is by far the most important issue. And it is, I think, the issue on which the next general election in 2024, 25, whenever it happens, has to happen before um, February 25. I Yeah, February 25, five years. Um, it is going to be won or lost on the basis of the progress that's been made on the housing market. So I, I just hope um, that the politicians in power actually realise that point and do their utmost to address the housing situation. I'm not saying for one moment, just throw money at the problem because, you know, one of the difficulties in delivering the housing supply that's required is the capacity of the construction sector to deliver without generating serious uh, construction inflation. Uh, But notwithstanding that reservation, I I do think a, a really concerted effort to address housing is absolutely essential at this point. I agree totally. And that's true of other economies as well, not least here in the UK. Uh, housing and the cost of renting or buying is, is a cut through issue across uh, all sections of the electorate, but particularly, of course, the younger generation. Jim, we haven't done a COVID corner for a long time. Thankfully, we haven't done a COVID corner. But I think that uh, there's an unfortunate chart I'm looking at as we speak, uh, which I think requires at least a mention, which is the the incidence of COVID-19 on a per capita basis uh, has been much higher here in the UK for quite a while relative to Ireland. And on the recent data, the, uh, the, the, the lines are crossing. Your incidence and the UK's incidence um, have crossed slightly. So it's slightly higher on the most recent data in Ireland. We're going up and the UK is going down. The UK has been falling in recent days, yeah, yeah. After, from a very high level, still at a high level. Uh, so I, I really don't know what to make of that other than to say that it is quite remarkable. Uh, I didn't expect the UK numbers to fall quite so precipitately, and I didn't, don't think anybody expected Ireland to suddenly shoot up. But it, it, it seems to be that 
other European countries are also experiencing this rise, which the UK got first, and it could be a function of many things, but an obvious suspect is waning vaccine immunity. The UK got its vaccines in early and faded early and therefore got the the, the most recent surge early and the Maybe some kind of herd immunity is kicking in. Who knows? I certainly don't know. But it, it is it is still worth remarking that certainly here in the UK, everybody thinks that COVID has gone away. It's not it's not nearly the salient issue that it is in Ireland, for example. Uh, but in both jurisdictions, it most definitely has not gone away. But on a more optimistic note, we've had uh, on consecutive days two brand new antiviral announcements, which I think are quite big, particularly the second one from Pfizer. Uh, which seems to have an incredibly high efficacy rate for keeping people out of hospital. Uh, we're used to good announcements from the from the vaccine announcements about this time last year, actually. And I think this is this would have been on a similar standing. If, if we were going into this without vaccines, we'd have regarded these antiviral treatments as being as significant as the original vaccines. So hopefully, they will get some uh, more more good news about that. Uh, so so praise for once for big pharma for big tech. It's delivering. Uh, And and when you put all of that together, that the news on COVID is two steps forward, one step backwards, but tech profits are giving Ireland lots of tax revenues, but they're still massively high. The world economy has has slowed down a bit, but hasn't slowed down a lot. We've got a, a situation where stock markets are riding highs, particularly, of course, the United States. And it's worth remarking just briefly the 21 years ago, I think it was 21, maybe 22 years ago, actually, there was a book out called Dow 36,000 by two authors called Glassman and Hassett that was widely derided at the time because they were saying that the Dow Jones index, which is a rubbish stock market index, which should never, ever be mentioned in serious company, but they forecast that the Dow would imminently hit 36,000. They were right in terms of it hitting 36,000, but that was only this week. They were 22 years early. So uh, a, a moral for forecasting, and I think confirmation that we we, we need to be uh, very careful. Be like the lawyers who say something will happen, but never say when. Jim, I think we should probably call it there, uh, unless you've anything deep and meaningful that you'd wish to add to that. And I hope you have a good weekend. Yeah, Chris, uh, I, I guess uh, that that Doe story uh, is is really significant, and I do remember that book very well. Um, and I remember the reaction to it at the time. Uh, just to say, I was back on the road this week, uh, did three presentations in front of audiences, uh, one in Nina, one in Limerick, and one in Cork. Uh, small audiences, um, all social distance, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's great to be back on the road again. It's great to be standing up in front of live audiences. Long, so, long uh, may it continue. Long may it continue. Feeling very positive. Thank you very much, Chris. Yes. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.